Welcome to the Televerse, streaming in place. The Legend of Korra. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the end of week 24 here on Streaming in Place. We are talking about The Legend of Korra, book one, air, episodes three and four, The Revelation and The Voice in the Night. Um, and I, I do think we need to stick for with two episodes per day for now, but... Again, I'm wondering how you're doing, Allison, because a lot happens in these episodes. And Korra is not messing around with its themes and with its characters. It Immediately, like, you can feel that difference from Avatar with the age of the characters and the way that they are interacting with what they're experiencing. Because we're in episode three and then in episode four and we've already got, like, okay, PTSD. And let's let's talk about trauma, trauma, yeah, like that, yeah, like yeah. that. So, uh, how did you feel about these Doobie episodes? Hijinks music, trauma. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I was really impressed with both of these episodes. I will say, I have recovered. I now feel properly that I am watching another television show, and not that I have fallen down some dark wormhole um, of Avatar: The Last Airbender. Now I feel like I'm properly watching Legend of Korra. I have adjusted. I'm on the same plane now. We're ready. We can do this, I think. Um, I was, Kate, I was wondering the same thing when we, when I was getting ready to record, when we were getting ready to record, where I just, it feels like this is like four or five episodes worth of ATLA, right? Yeah. This is, it's a lot. Just the second episode we could probably talk about for an hour. Um which is good. That's a really good problem to have. It is also a little overwhelming. Uh, and I think that that's a testament to the series that it works as well as it does. But at the same time, it feels like it could very easily veer off into something that's maybe overwhelming or even sort of overstimulating um, pretty easily. So mm-hmm. I hope that doesn't happen based on the little bits and pieces I've picked out from the way that you and Noel talk about later seasons i'm guessing that's actually not the problem and that there's a different problem entirely but right now um had i no idea what was coming in the future i would be wondering how cora could sustain this pace and um and keep its audience engaged because it's impressive but i am exhausted (laughs) you're ready for the weekend yes yes i am (laughs) noel how about you I don't disagree. Um, I don't know that I felt like overwhelmed when I initially watched this. Um, but I mean, the benefit of like watching an episode a week, I think made a difference in that feeling. Um, but it still moves really fast and it doesn't want to like hold back on punches or anything about what it wants to do. So everything like within, um, the revelation about Amon apparently having energy bending abilities and Tenzin kind of being kind of shifty about it and being like, only the Avatar could do that. I don't know anything. Um, he doesn't know anything. Don't worry. Um, but it's like a very kind of shifty sort of like, wait, what about any of this? Um, and then we start getting like some teases of the voice of the night of like the flashbacks that just create so many questions about, wait, what was happening? What happened? What? 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 Um, there's just good stuff. And also I really enjoy, um, the voice of the night because it introduces Tarlock, who is delicious and amazing and voiced by Dee Bradley Baker, who's 
did Appa and Momo and Pabu and Naga and all the animals. And that's him actually talking for once. Um, so I think it's all just really kind of neat. Um, we also get Asami in this pair of episodes as well, which is also something to discuss. Um, Marcus, to answer your question, is what Aang did to Ozai common knowledge? Who knows? No one knows. Um, I don't I don't think that it is, but I honestly don't know. Um, I imagine that's something that's probably in the transmedia stuff. Um, I don't know if they address it directly in the show or not, and I can't remember either, because this is really my first time revisiting a lot of this. Um, so I'm really keen on everything, and I also do want to know what Keenan thought, real quick, about how they were generating all that electricity for Republic City. <laughs> because, yeah, it's kind it's it makes sense, but also a little fucked up. <laughs> Keenan says, I'm uh, obviously horrified, but mostly animals. Yes, let's talk about Pabu. I promised you Pabu, and he's adorable. <laughs> he's so adorable. Yeah. Oh, God. The little tail. The, this is like... All of the animals are cute. This is the, well, except for the ones that are horrifying, but even those (laughs) are cute in a horrifying way. But this is the first one where I was like, this was made for the internet. (laughs) Like, like Pabu definitely has his own Instagram account for sure. Probably. And then probably a couple knockoffs and um, definitely the brothers are doing some like influencer shenanigans on the back end and getting free stuff out of it. Eventually I'm assuming. Yes, he's very cute. Yeah, I love Pabu. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what's not to love about basically just a longer red panda? Like, it's just yeah. so cute. <laughs> um, Kate, how was it revisiting these episodes for you? Sorry, I'm just still on Pabu. Um, That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Stick the landing. Stick the landing. Uh, he says, so cute as hell. <laughs> Wowzers, I needed him. This was a pair of heavy episodes. And I think that that is an important thing to note, uh, is that having Pabu really helps a lot with some of the stuff that's going on. And then the immediate reaction of Naga and, and Cora having to say, this is not food. <laughs> Fish are friends, friend, not food. Not a snack. Yeah. And then, then they're tight now. They're good. Naga's like, oh, okay. Well, yeah. Okay. You're cute. We're on board. It's good. Um, so yeah, having that little bit of comfort in the episode, um, makes a lot of sense it works well and also kind of puts you in the position of Bolin theoretically when they were having a really tough time after their parents died um when he was having a really tough time and probably needed quite a bit of comfort and was like I'm gonna take care of this adorable creature that in my head at least that's like how they ended up with Pabu that's how like you know, Bolin has a pet, uh, even though they don't really have a place to stay outside of their gym. So, yeah, it the, this, uh, these episodes are really interesting. There's a lot happening. Um, and yet, uh, I, I still really enjoyed getting to sit with both of them. You know, the... <laughs> I mean, Asami's great. I really enjoy um, and this. I, I don't feel like this is a spoiler, Allison. Uh, Asami, like her, she doesn't have bending. Her ability, she's the Batman, right, of the group. She throws money at stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just very straightforward. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that they are very clear uh, and transparent with that. Where they're like, well, we don't have superpowers, but... 
we also don't have money. And so <laughs> there are things that, that Asami can do that we will never be able to do. And to just really dive in, you know, headfirst with that in this first episode, uh, listeners at home, Allison's name in the Zoom is, so I understand you're dirt poor. Uh, Delivered so wonderfully by Daniel Take Kim. Just perfect delivery on that line. <laughs> what what an introduction to uh, Asami's dad. Um, there's just so much to enjoy. And, and particularly in these episodes, because I wasn't so focused as I was in the first two episodes on the world and the characters, I was just, just delighting in the aesthetic and yeah. the old-timey feel. And uh, I watched these on my laptop, so it didn't skip through the, the old-timey newsreel introductions, which is fun and everything for me. So I was really able to enjoy all the aesthetic choices and just getting to spend more time in this particular version of the world. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed these episodes. Um, and because I know what happens and, and not going through the experience in the same way as a first-time viewer, I could also just enjoy the construction of the yeah. fight scenes and how, like, the most tense moments were built to and kind of crafted. So, yeah, I had a lot of fun with these. Allison, uh, wh- wh- what do you think of Asami? Um, well, so first, I'm I'm having a little trouble with a character that I, that I know in my bones I am supposed to like um, because... She's styled so so clearly, um, in a in a manner that that looks a lot like uh, Vanessa, the yep. human form of Ursula the Sea Witch, um, <laughs> including the hair and like there's like a there's like a neck situation. Um, so I just was immediately like, I don't trust you. You have Ariel's voice. Um, <laughs> In like a really primal way, I wasn't expecting. It was like I ju- and I kept watching. I was like, okay, there, there's no evidence that th- this is a character I'm supposed to view suspiciously at all. Um, I'm gonna have to put aside my negative associations about Vanessa, the human form of Ursula the Sea Witch, and my negative associations about Henry Ford. I'm gonna have to push those to the side. So that I can get down with the Sodomobile Empire. Um, I didn't realize that I knew Vanessa was the name of Ursula the Sea Witch's human form until you got halfway through that sentence. And I knew exactly <laughs> what you meant. <laughs> I mean, yeah. she's a very iconic villain. Yeah. Um, underrated. Ursula, obviously, not underrated. Ursula correctly rated as one of the great cinematic villains of all time that I promise I'm almost done. Vanessa, on the other hand, underrated the reprise of poor unfortunate souls that Vanessa sings, which means Jody Benson sings it. It is a delight. Revisit a little mermaid, the little mermaid if you haven't recently. Anyway, could not, could not trust her, but I like her intellectually. <laughs> um, I know on on like an intellectual level that I'm supposed to like her and that I will eventually. Um, I uh, was very charmed by that introduction. It's a pretty typical meet cute only sl- with slightly more threat of physical violence. Um, I, as the my Zoom name indicates, very much like the Frank like, hey, so you're a peasant. I used to be a peasant. Um, <laughs> nature of that conversation. Let's talk about serfdom. It's, those were the days. Um, I liked that very much. I liked that we got kind of a reverse pretty woman. Um, I really wish that the fancy scarf had been in a box and that Mako had reached for it and then he could she could have shut the 
box on. Um, Why didn't you wear the scarf I got you? I like for my new things to be pretty. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is. A, I mean, it's a very weird thing to do, but there's something in in kind of an Eveish way where I yeah. sort of mm-hmm. like and respect it all the same, despite the fact that she looks like Vanessa, the human form of Ursula the Sea Witch. Um, I uh, am am less wary of these brothers despite the fact that i'm still wary of the tropes the like hey here's the stuff i got you and i'm gonna be weirdly proprietary and jealous over but not about that but um but i enjoyed the dynamic very much um you were talking about how in these episodes it was easier for you to just sort of enjoy the visual aesthetic and not be whipped around. I will say, despite the fact that I felt more present in these episodes than I did in the first two, um, still wonder if maybe uh, the powers that be weren't underestimating the absolute whiplash that's going to happen every time we get a glimpse of one of our friends as a slightly older version of that friend. Because am I wrong or do we get in this, in the second episode, do we get a little glimpse of like teenage or adult Toph? You get a like quick adult snippets of Sokka and Toph. As I did well not as, see Sokka, but yeah, I definitely and, saw Toph. And Aang, obviously, as well. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the little, like the flash that the she memory, sees. Fl- the memory vision flashes, yes. Right. Um, which eventually get explained. So that's not, that's something that gets explained within this season. Okay. So that all had the trappings of this will be explained later. Look, a mystery for you to puzzle over, which is yes. great. Um, however, it doesn't change the fact that I was like, Oh my God, that was tough. And then missed everything <laughs> that happened, including apparently Sokka. Right. Um, I, although I did notice Aang for like the next 30 seconds. So I don't know. I don't know if that's a recency thing, if it's just because we just watched the first series or if that's something specific to me. Um, but it does sort of disrupt my engagement with the story in the present because I get so excited, <laughs> um, which uh, is really cool, but also sort of disruptive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. Kate, you mentioning the aesthetics and the atmosphere, I think are really important, especially for both of these episodes. Um, everything like, um, Cora and Lako's approach to the, um, factory that has the revelation meetup in it is just, gorgeous like it, that whole muted gold um smoke fog thing that they have going on especially at night for republic city is just so gorgeous and beautiful and i really really love it um then i also really appreciate uh Amon's ambush of cora on avatar island uh where you just get flashes of light from the firebending and you can see all the little equalists and the chi blockers running around and then they kind of disappear when their goggles fade out from the light it's just so so very good um my big like visual kind of takeaway from this this pair of episodes actually comes in um the revelation where um mako and Korra are chasing the equalists on their motorcycles and then just have a big fight in this massive empty courtyard area um, the fight itself is pretty decent, I think, but it's the thing I love about it is that it's just a big fat homage to Ghost in the Shell, um, the anime movie from the um, mid '90s, um, which has a really big showstopper fight scene in a massive courtyard 
there's just water everywhere in that one because both people are invisible. Um, but it's a very big homage to that. And I just really love when those kind of references kind of sneak in. Um, so yeah, aesthetically, I think that these pair of episodes really kind of step up what we're, what we're, what the show's wanting to do because it's, one of the things about these episodes is that um, they took about eight to ten months to make um, from conception to completion, uh, which is a very long time even for animation. And it shows in every single frame. Um, so it's just really gorgeous to watch them like pull all this together in really exciting ways. As Marcus says, I think this is visually more appealing and ambitious than Avatar. 16 uh, by 9 ratio helps so we can see more of the world. Excellent point. But it's also just like, they know what they have with Korra. They didn't, I don't think Nickelodeon knew what they had with Avatar for at least initially. So they are spending and you can see it and it's gorgeous. Uh, Keenan says, it's startling and fascinating every time we see just a regular old bender using Avatar's super bending, so metal bending, lightning. I'm also feeling lots of feelings about the bender and non-bender divide. Like, yes, there's so much power and risk of abuse, but also the benders are literally powering the city and pro-bending while being economically exploited. Um, also, uh, point out, points out the water, Keenan points out the waters are muddy, which if, you know, I think back, of course, to our uh, Painted Lady episode of Avatar and you know what that points to for you know the pros and cons of this world versus where we were in avatar but um yeah the having like the the lightning powering the city uh the pro bending being so big uh we've seen the ways which our heroes or what should be the forces of good have benefited from the developments to bending um over time like for example the metal bending in the police force right but the chi blocking has also developed 70 years and to we've never i don't feel like we've ever seen the avatar this vulnerable as we do in these episodes and th- when you don't have a 100 year war focusing all of the benders and into and all of the you know the nations of the fire nation and and everybody into putting their benders to uh like basically conscripting them into their armies for sole purpose, then you end up with a very different power dynamic around bending um, and with the, the, the average person's interactions uh, around bending. So it's definitely uh, a lot more nuanced and a lot more ready. This show is a lot more ready to and able to have the conversations around power and what it means to have that kind of power uh, than, than, of course, than Avatar was. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I actually, like, I mean, I really appreciate Amon's story, whether it's real or not, uh, remains to be seen. Um, But this whole concept of that there's really no balance to be had is a real kind of thrust against this idea of the four nations always having existed in balance, like the four elements, etc., etc., Um, and that then building on that idea of, well, bending's always just bots pain and suffering and we we can get rid of it and this is how we do it um and i'm the one to do it is just really compelling to watch because one of the things i really like is that we get to see that really dramatic instance of um oh what's his character's name because it's so good lightning bolt zolt which is just such a good bending gangster name <laughs> um watching his lightning turn to fire and then turn to nothing 
um, is a really good way to demonstrate the energy bending in a different sort of way from, say, how we get to see worked against Ozai with all that big, flashy anime magic kind of thing happening there. Um, so there's like lots of little things here in terms of, wait, but if you get rid of the bending, then what happens to all this sort of stuff? And like the power systems and everything are really wonky a little bit because the other thing to remember they don't make this explicit but um they will a little bit later is that the entire council is nothing but benders um for republic city so it's got northern water tribe southern water tribe earth kingdom fire nation and then the air nomads represented by tenzin um they're all benders all of them um and that's that's a little weird and maybe not the best thing and when your police force is almost entirely metal benders except for that one dude who gets to patrol the park maybe because he's not a metal bender mm-hmm. <laughs> there's weird there are absolutely weird power dynamics happening within republic city from where the power structure lies to this weird exploitation of firebenders to generate lightning for electricity for it and then this idea of the pro bending as a entertainment source maybe just something to please those masses and those plebes um, what what is it? Bread and circus. Bread, bread and circuses. Yeah. Bread and circuses type of deal. Um, so there's just like lots of really complicated thorny things here. So much so that um, one of my best friends, um, loves Avatar: The Last Airbender. Showed it to her kid immediately, like as soon as he was old enough to like really kind of watch it and enjoy it. But then was just like told him very explicitly, "You're not allowed to watch Korra until you're 15," because. Mm-hmm. <laughs> none of this is going to make sense and also it's all very dark Mm -hmm. and it just gets darker this book in particular just gets progressively darker so all of these like really thorny issues just i think really enrich this idea of a world on a tipping point because they haven't had any sense that because now suddenly everything gets to flourish because there's no war so yeah, there's just a lot of like really meaty stuff in this that is there immediately, I think, and really complicated. Um, and I really like that the show decided to think really critically about, wait, what does this world look like now after a war and basically 70 years after one? Yeah, I um, I was very compelled in particular by the sort of reflecting storylines of Amon and Tenzin in terms of their tactics um and what it is that they want and what they do in order to pursue that want um we don't obviously know all that much about amon so far but i think it is very reasonable to question his motives and to question um why he's pushing the buttons he's pushing um and and basically everything about him or her, as we should always question people who attempt to make themselves public figures while wearing a, a mask or hiding behind basically anything, right? Um, there's no transparency there. For all we know, that's seven people and they all just trade the mask off, right? Like, it could be just about anything. It, it could also be a bender, um, which is sort of where my head is at right now, Um because the what came through in the Tenzin storyline is this sort of ruthlessness uh, and a willingness to emotionally manipulate people in order to achieve their own ends, whether or not those ends are positive, 
doesn't so much matter um, when it's obviously also the pursuit of power, right? Could this be an, a good thing? Could this task force be a good thing? Possibly. Uh, it doesn't really seem like that's the best way to go about this, but pot, maybe it is. I don't know. I've never run a city full of vendors and non-vendors before. What do I know? But there's um, an obvious interest in increasing his level of power, his personal level of power in deepening his connection to Cora and increasing his importance to the city um, and having people, I mean, Cora defers to him and the task force. He very clearly senses her misgivings and her fears and takes advantage of them. Um, uh, it's the way they communicate. The fact that he set up that question in the press conference is really smart um, and subtle and unsettling. Um, so all of that manipulation from Tarlock, I think, increased the questions I would already have been asking about Iman. And I feel like this theory has already been disproven by the way, the nature of this conversation. Uh, but I watched this episode, assuming the eventual reveal was that those two people were the same person. Sure. Um, which is also happening in the comments as well. Marcus. Is um, it great? Yeah. Yeah. I was just assuming that they were the same person, um, which may or may not be the case. And obviously they are voiced by two different people. Um, masks but, are weird, but masks are weird. <laughs> Suddenly you're, suddenly you're Stephen Bloom instead of D. Bradley Baker. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the point being, the point is that people who are active in the pursuit of power can often do good things or seemingly good things for seemingly good motives and also have that be a means of achieving more power. Those things aren't mutually exclusive, but whenever the motives are corruptible you have to question those things right you cannot assume that any act is entirely selfless um so for example with aman why is he stoking these particular fears why is he fueling this understandable resentment and this obvious issue in this city um and why is he going about it in the way that he is? Those are all questions that if, say, you're living living in a society that's um, in a precarious position uh, where maybe you should be questioning literally everything that you hear from the leadership uh, of your country, you might want to think critically about about why people are getting angry about the things they're getting angry about, why particular flames are being fed. Uh, and that was the big question I took away from the uh, the second of these two episodes in particular. Hmm. Um, Marcus says the police remind me of the Dai Li. And I think that's an excellent call. I agree. It's the way that they move um, with the, all the, the wire cables and everything. And, you know, the Dai Li obviously being earthbenders and metal bending being a, a subset of that. But I think that's got to be an intentional animation choice because they, they are not encouraging. They are not. They do not make me feel more confident in the goodness and safety of what's happening for the citizens, the citizenry. Um, so yeah, uh, we'll get more with the police uh, before too long, obviously, because you don't bring Lin there, Lin Beifang, and then just not spend any time with the police. Um, Marcus said that he thinks that uh, Amen is 
is Tarlock. I don't trust that manipulative guy. Keenan says Tarlock makes my skin crawl. He's so manipulative. Um, and Marcus says, well, Hayden Christensen did become James Earl Jones, so masks can do a lot. Um, the the thing, like, I, I feel like this is, like, what we know so far as audience members, right? The only time we've seen someone take away someone's bending was with bending. So either there's some new way to take away bending that looks the same as the way we saw Aang <laughs> take away bending, or Eamon is a bender. And he's just taking advantage of the fact that his followers don't seem to make that connection, or they are perfectly okay with their guy bending, just no one else. You know what I mean? And Which has all sorts of parallels to other times and the present. Um, so it, it's just the way all of this is, like, the story is interesting, but the way it's filmed is also very effective, very potent, like the imagery of um, just even the positioning of the characters. We've talked about the revelation sequence, but um, yeah, there's, you know, for a show that is centered on power, Avatar mostly ex examined the individual's relationship with power. And so having Korra dive in right from the beginning with, no, we're going to talk about power structures. We're going to talk about um, gr large groups of people and how those intersect. And we're going to ask more difficult questions than just how do I individually wield power? Um, I'm very excited to keep rewatching and seeing um, what the current, landscape of our experiences brings to this material and you know my understanding and appreciation of the series it is like i knew i really liked cora i really enjoyed it when it was airing um but it is so benefiting in my memory from this distance i've had from it and re-watching it in this way oh i'm really glad to hear that because i i sort of immediately wanted the chance to reinvestigate these but with distance you know what i mean um it reminds me a lot of certain elements of the fourth season of Supergirl, um, but but uh, but with more complexity. <laughs> um, sorry, Supergirl. Uh, I sorry, Melissa. I love you. Um, and I think that that you can tell that it's good because it feels timely now. And part of the reason it feels timely now is because holy shit, what week are we in? Week. 24 <laughs> the um, end of 24 you know uh, when i when we have to question again everything um from like is it safe to mail in my ballot like we shouldn't really be asking these questions but here we are um or we should be asking them but we shouldn't have to uh so i think it's a testament to the writing that it feels relevant now it will I'm sure feel relevant in the future and I'm sure it felt relevant at the time, which makes for a pretty good piece of political storytelling. Yeah. Um, there's stuff coming down the pipe in this season um, that will really ratchet that up, I think going forward. Um, but I'm really excited to get there. Um, yeah. I'm, I've been excited to revisit this season in particular with everyone um, just for all those reasons. <laughs> Do we have any final thoughts? And like that, that fight scene was sure really cool, wasn't it? <laughs> All of yeah. them. There's yeah. a bunch of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm very excited about the pair of episodes we're going to be watching for Monday. Um, Cause episode six is actually one of my favorite episodes of the show. 
Um, and then so is episode eight. And then so is, no. Um, there's a, <laughs> the, the show kicks into a totally different gear with episode six and then going forward. Um, so I'm very excited for those. Mm. Allison, any final thoughts? Mm. No, I really like Tenzin. Um, I think I'm still very interested in that relationship. And I think Simmons is doing a great job. Um, I loved the final Tenzin chorus scene um, that we got in, in the course of these two episodes. Um, and I'm, I'm just very engaged by a character who connects to the past. And by that, I don't mean in a storytelling way, but whose emotional journey obviously is causing him to reflect on people we know at a time we don't know them. Um, yeah. I think that's a, a very interesting, unusual perspective to have both on and through a character. Yeah. Uh, Kina says, it's so interesting to me that even though Korra is incredibly strong and powerful, just because she hasn't had to be in hiding and hasn't been this mythical figure of might, she's so much more vulnerable in this world. It's scaring, It's scary and destabilizing. And yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, the white the white lotus should have included a course on media literacy. <laughs> yeah, clearly <laughs> before as part of their training, um, yeah. because understanding how newspapers and ra- radios work. Because I'm on hijacking that radio signal is just so wonderful and perfect and so 1940s that I can't stand it. Mm-hmm. But also, like the white lotus failed massively not to prepare anyone for not to prepare her for dealing with the press. <laughs> Yeah, uh, definitely Avatar School in the future needs to have media training. Yeah. Uh, 100%. You know, they had somebody in the last team who could do that, which is Toph, because she yeah. had to grow up learning all of that, you know, like, how do we act in which company and all of that. She doesn't like it, but she can do it if she needs to, right? And there's nobody on the team so far that can, that that, that has that background. So, um Yeah. Well, our episodes for Monday, I I know two episodes a day is a lot, but you know what? I'm really excited that by the we're going to watch the rest of this next week. I'm very excited about that. Um, so on Monday, we're going to be talking about uh, episode five and six. Episode five is The Spirit of Competition, and episode six is And the Winner Is. And that takes us halfway through the season. So, uh, Allison, any guesses? Um... Well, uh, I'm going to guess that the pro-bending finals happen. And Marcus is bending tournament, so yeah. you guys are both on the same page. Um, maybe over the course of those two episodes, but there's some sort of parallel and also the creepy nefarious plan that we've heard about takes pl- this actually feels extremely Supergirl, takes place at the pro-bending tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's my guess. Keenan says, speaking of spirits, when uh, Amon started talking about them, I, it made me realize how much I just kind of assumed that with all this quote modernity, uh, the spirits were kind of fading from the world. So, um... <laughs> Ooh, that was a very subtle. <laughs> Water's yummy. So. Uh... More on that later. Uh, what what I can tell you is that book two is... So book one is air. Book two is spirits. Well, I'm looking forward to that. 
Yeah. Let's be sad. Let's be sad and watch cartoons. Let's be sad. That's the new streaming in place theme song. Not really. Uh, Don't that, ever take away delightful. the welcome to the Sarah Televerse jingle. Oh, did we lose Kate? Oh, well, on that note, we're not going to top that. So let's uh, end it there. Thank you to Marcus and Keenan for hanging out with us today in the Zoom. And thank you, Evan, for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you.